I'm here with Dr. Roy Fielding, uh, a very old friend at this point. I think we've known each other, God, almost half our lives now. Yeah, 25 years in counting. So. Yeah, approaching anyway. And um, we are here to talk about the Apache Way. And this is a talk that I've wanted to do for a long time because, of course, I am now um, maybe the high priestess of Intersource. And uh, Intersource is pulled right out of the Apache Way. So uh, you and I have had this conversation, and I already know most of this story, but I think it's worth putting it down once for posterity. So that's what we're here for. Thanks. Okay. So um, let's start with how we met. <laughs> uh, so I, in 1999, I got hired to, to open source Java. And at the time, Java was uh, sort of the crown jewels, you know, is the emerging language that everybody wanted to have a piece of. And um, you were right around that time working on founding the Apache Software Foundation. But let's go before that. Before that, I think you were working on the code base that became um, HTTPD. True. Yes, uh, I guess in February of 1995, we uh, started the uh, Apache project, which was with Brian Bellendorf and a number of other developers who became, eventually we called ourselves the Apache Group, but we're just individuals all around the web who were working on the NCSA HTTP server. So the web server that, that NCSA and Rob McCool um, developed. Right. And um, I know why Brian was doing it. Why were you doing it? Well, I, I had just become the editor of the HTTP specification itself. So the, the standard that describes how the protocol works and how to, how to interact between clients and servers on the web. And I um, was interested in both extending the server I was using, which was NCSA, the NCSA server, and also having a, a group that could um, proof out all any changes that we might make to the protocol itself and also to defend the protocol from predations of the private corporations who were at the time starting to compete over how they could turn the web into something that was just for their platform. And it was being standardized at W3C or IEEE? Uh, actually at W3C in the IETF, uh, primarily uh, yeah. in, in the IETF. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Rough consensus and working code, right? Yeah, exactly. So we had rough consensus. What we needed was working code that we could point to and say, hey, this is how the web is implemented and we're not going to change it for you. Yeah, I love that, actually. <laughs> so for those of you that didn't weren't working in the industry in 1995, um, the industry was a far different place than it is today. Uh, individual companies were rapacious in their attempts to um, outright own foundational standards and foundational technologies, uh, own in the sense that they were the only ones that got to say anything about changing them. And it was sort of a market forces win play. But um, Tim Berners-Lee had a different idea for the web, right? Yeah, Tim thought of it as a global commons. His goal was to 
was originally to connect all of the scientists of the world to study high energy physics and to be able to um, share their notes. So he always approached it from the perspective of, of sort of scientific collaboration rather than um, a commercial platform. And that's that helped in terms of, you know, as as soon as he got to the point where they were finished coding the initial versions, he made it open source. Or at the time, he just, um, they licensed it as public domain. Uh, and uh, that encouraged others to join the project, to Co to collaborate via the www-talk mailing list um, from all over the world. So most of the the web since um, 1993 or so was built outside of Europe where it originally started. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a really moving story. And when we when I first started learning about open source, because you know I came into it straight out of Apple right? With a, a tiny detour into semantic, which was not a more open place. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then I got that job at Sun and, and I sort of got a crash course because of course Sun wasn't really practicing open source, but they were talking about it a lot and that was pissing people off. And I was sort of in between the community that knew how wrong we were getting it and Sun itself. And, yeah. you know, I had a lot of conversations with Bill Joy back in that time and he really thought he was improving on the open source model by creating the hub and spoke license that Java was originally licensed under. Like the code was available, but you had to go through Sun to do anything. And right. that was that reflected his lack of confidence that a commons could work, which I find sort of interesting looking back on it now. Yeah, and it, it's that that was how we met. I mean, the first conversation we had, I think, was in a conference where where you had introduced the um, community source licensing. And I was trying to describe why open source is better. And you had a smile on your face because you knew it was better. <laughs> yeah, well, I did that thing, you know, they, they, their problem with me, I don't know if you know this story, but about six months into my employment at Sun as the person open sourcing Java, I, um, I actually quit. I like, you know, right. walked into my office and quit. Be and the reason I did it was I was really tired of catching all the rotten tomatoes because uh, they they weren't they weren't hearing me when I was saying, "Listen, this isn't going to fly." And so, um, I you know, I told them I needed to leave. And what I didn't realize was that we had half a percent unemployment in Silicon Valley at that moment. I did know that it was low. I figured I could get another job if I put my thumb out on De Anza Boulevard, right? But right. um. I didn't realize that they couldn't let me leave. Like I didn't, I didn't mean to set them up to have to make an offer, but basically they said, you know, what would it take to keep you here? And, and I said, I, I think you're going to need the open source community. I think, you know, you're going to have to come around and they're all pissed at you now, but they like me. <laughs> so maybe, That's right. we, maybe we should uh, give me an official title, you know, that implies that I, have the power to help change sun. And then when you're ready to do that, they'll be able to talk to you. Right. And they thought that was an okay idea. Yeah. I mean, that is a good idea because one of the most important things is have that bridge. Uh, and you can only do, do that with good people. Well, Brian used to say, it, you know, that I was uniquely positioned for that job because I could see both sides. 
And also I was willing to take some risks. Like you can, you probably remember me. I used to stand on the stage and I'd say whatever son wanted me to say. And then I'd take a step to the left or right. And I'd say, but this is what I think. Right. Yes. (laughs) Which is why you guys liked me. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's the same for me. I mean, I have a computer science educational background, but before that I was a liberal arts person. I went to Reed college up in Portland, Oregon and, uh, did three years of trying to mix political science and, and physics as, as a major and got pretty much nowhere with it because I wasn't a very good student at the time. But when I went back down, back home towards um, UC Irvine and finished my, my undergraduate in computer sciences, um, there is no emphasis on international politics, no emphasis on physics, but as soon as I graduated, went out into the workforce, I find that, well, having actually international politics background is really useful yeah. in, uh, in the world we live in. Yeah, it, I, I hear you. It was, there, in those early days, there was definitely, uh, we, were, we were lucky that, I mean, the movement was lucky, that it attracted a handful of people that had both sides you know, emotion, high emotional intelligence quotient and enough tech to not embarrass themselves. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was, that was a really key piece of the puzzle back then. So, and I think it probably still is today, but I don't know that we find those people as readily as we used to. Yeah. It's very difficult. Uh, Partly because people want to specialize so soon. Oh, in the academic system. Yeah. That's a mess. I mean, you know, my degrees in French literature, right? So, um, but you have to, you have to, you have to develop a facility for learning so that you can jump in to whatever, you know, you're called to do as it happens. Yes. So I already had math. I already learned how to program in basic, even though I was, you know, writing in French, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was how that was all helpful. So anyway, yay. Lucky us. Um, but yeah, you were a kid. I remember you were, you, you, uh, you know, you hadn't gotten married yet. You were, you were just figuring out how to, you know, stop living like a student and start being a grown up and all that stuff. It was, it was exciting because be, between you and Brian, you got so much done before you were 30. Yes. You know? Especially, you know, and, and Brian and I, uh, worked very well together. Just, I, I've, I've been very fortunate in having a lot of, of collaborators, uh, and very, you know, different, different projects that I always find someone I can collaborate with that we can sort of bounce ideas off of and be happy with the result. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You, so, so how, why the name Apache? I mean, I know, but let's get it down on recording. Well, there, there are two myths about, well, one of them, there's the myth about the Apache being named Apache, uh, was it being Apache server, whereas it, we used to start out developing the server by collecting patch files together, and the patch files would show the differences between what was changed, you know, what we had versus what we wanted it to be, and that would compose together would be a Apache server. Interestingly, that came up after uh, we named this project Apache. So I'm absolutely certain that that's not where the name came from. Um, oh, the name came from, I think, a John Mishner book that, that Brian had read called Apache. Oh. Um, 
and the book described the uh, Native American people who collectively their enemies referred to as Apache because Apache is the is I believe the Navajo word for enemy, and um, how they organized their society as part of it because um, it was a drama dramatic book probably not based on reality at all, um, but um, it it was based on the actual um, American Indian people. Uh, Native American people who are um, collectively referred to as, as the Apache tribes. And the the key aspect of it was that rather than having a uh, sort of a hierarchy of leadership, like a king or uh, an elected leadership um, that's regular, they wouldn't have any leadership until there was a, a, a particular um, effective battle, uh, either a, a raid or a, uh, defense of the tribe for some reason or another, they would wait until they actually needed a leader for a specific thing. And then they would choose a leader from those who were best suited for the task. Um, so this is a way of describing um, how we wanted to work as a community. We wanted each of us to be active in developing our own projects for our own interests um, work on our own code for our interests or work on each other's code because we have a common interest. But we didn't want to have one person be the technical lead for Apache. We wanted a person necessarily to produce the releases when they wanted to do a release, but it didn't have to be the same person every time. And it didn't have to be um, like anointed by that person over time. So no so we benevolent had- dictator. Right, no benevolent dictator. It was all based upon who had the who had the ability and the time at a particular moment. Um, now, later on, I, I referred to that as meritocracy, which is unfortunate use of the term because it was already used for other things. But um, basically, meaning that uh, we were respecting the 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 fact that people had worked hard and worked for a particular goal on the project and we would give them the ability to do things like manage the next release. Right. Well, you were escalating um, levels of responsibility. Right. Right. Which, um, yeah, it's, it's a good trick, right? Because if you build a club and the way that you, that you gain um, reputation in the club is by doing good things for the club, then the club is going to move along pretty quickly. Yes. (laughs) It was it was a yeah. good hack. Um, I remember when Brian discussed with me the first time that that they were going to incorporate. And you guys were working on that, and I was like, Are you, "Aren't you just making another old boys club?" And he said, "Yeah, but it, there are boys." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah. Um, yeah. All right. I so when did you realize that the way that you guys were working could be? Um, the basis for, uh, you know, like codified into something like the Apache way? Um, oh, I think that was from very early on. I mean, we, we developed our, our system of voting, I think, uh, one or two months, actually in the first month that we were de- de- you know, producing the server. And, um, and you mean basically, the lazy and- consensus voting? Yeah, lazy consensus voting or, or plus one, minus one. You need three plus ones for for a decision. You need a majority decision after that. All that was you know, that's a combination of 
of Rob Hartle, who worked in in um, Los Alamos National Lab- Laboratories and also the IMDb database. Um, and myself, you know, I was, you know, he was, um, produced the idea of, of voting and I added, uh, well, we make decisions by majority. And then we, we wrote that down as a set of guidelines for how the project was going to work because at, at the time we were moving so fast and gaining the users so fast that, um, we had to, um, basically resolve conflicts while they were occurring. So as soon as someone would 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 get upset about something someone else did, we would f- try to find a way to like, well, how do we how do we avoid this in the future? Not that how do we avoid mistakes because mistakes are always going to happen, but how do we evolve getting upset? How do we resolve that getting upset from um, being able to make a decision? So if if we're able to make a decision quickly to to remove a mistake then we're able to get over the fact that a mistake had taken place very quickly. And uh, what, what we found is one of the real problems that we started out with is because we had no technical leader, each time someone had tried to be a technical leader, um, others might get upset about that. Um, so we, we, we changed the way we interacted so that people understood it was okay to lead and it was okay to object to their leadership or object to what it is that they had done. You know, you weren't objecting to the person, you're objecting to the change that was occurring in the server. Um, you're objecting to how it impacted your platform. Or there's a lot of objections to simply, you know, well, that's cruft that I don't want in my server. Let's put it in some other part of the server or not distribute it at all. And that in turn fed into uh, what do we want the server software to become? And Robert Tao, who's working at MIT at the time, um, redesigned the whole server architecture so that we could separate functionality into libraries and the core of the server could be clean and maintained to protect the various extensions from each other. And that was uh, a key to eventually us taking over the the server market um, in terms of uh, use. Right. At one point, I think the highest percentage I ever saw, but maybe I didn't, maybe I missed one was like 89% of all traffic going through Apache. Yeah, that, that would be the peak really. Okay. So now we talked a little bit about papers that were written in the early stages or real research that was done. I remember Sun wanting to know why people worked in open source, why it was why it was taking off basically and um, trying to explain it to them was super fun. But um, the fact that there was, that you guys had taken the time to write some stuff down uh, and, and publish it, you know, in places like ACM um, was really helpful. So do you want to talk about the role of research at the beginnings of, of uh, legitimizing the Apache way? Yeah, I mean, it, for me, it was it was a kind of a personal story in the sense that I, I was a graduate student at UC Irvine at the time, and I got involved in the web just as I finished up my classwork for the uh, for the PhD, which is really a master's degree at that point. So I got my master's degree and started looking around for things I could do to for a dissertation, and of course, that's incredibly boring. Um, so it didn't last very long before I, I just started looking for things to do. Um, 
And I had been right at the end of my classwork, I, I started to work on uh, the World Wide Web for its uh, in distributed information systems. Mm-hmm. And it was just interesting, exciting. And so I, I started following the developer mailing list and the, uh, I really started out on Usenet News. And I, I was very active at Usenet News and someone eventually pointed to me at the mailing list. And I said, oh, so this is where everybody's been hiding <laughs> on this mailing list. And um, so that got me involved in the core developers and, and we had a, a conference for um, plan for the World Wide Web conference at CERN. And so I decided to write up my my class project, which was uh, Mom Spider. Now, Mom Spider was a, a maintenance robot. Just every every uh, young programmer needs a mom to take care of their information, right? Right. And um, so it's a maintenance robot that would go through Spider, go through all of your HTML pages and find broken links or changed content. content. It would actually retrieve content from other sites and note that they were changed and then produce a nicely formatted list of, of things that you need to go look at because your links may have changed. Um, so I wrote that up as, as a paper for the first international web conference. And that, that got me to Geneva for the first web conference, which allowed me to meet some of the core team at CERN and also NCSA, which then allowed me to get involved in the internet standards for for the web. But all of that was done outside the scope of my normal research because my normal research was on software engineering environments. And at the time, you know, they, they were in sort of early stages of, of helping engineers within a company. And I decided to try to move that out to be, well, we could use hypertext as our software engineering platform and we could collaborate from people all over the web. Um, and, you know, that would be totally cool. And not, you know, most people just didn't believe that was possible because the, the web was so slow at the time. And of course it turned out, um, I never really got anywhere with that project other than to organize my own research. So we were able to you know, gather some funding for, for, so that I could continue working on the web and uh, travel to these conferences. Um, but other than that, it wasn't for another 10 years or so, or actually longer than that later that, that things like GitHub started to show up that did essentially the same thing, but we had never um, worked on ourselves or got to that point. Yeah, well, Git, of course, um, Linus had to write Git because uh, because his the the CMS that he was using for the Linux kernel wasn't up to the challenge, and he so he had that idea of the distributed system, right? Yeah, and and Git. Well, there there were others, of course. You know, right, Apache Apache was using CVS at the time, and then the, the Apache developers went on to create Subversion um, within our you know within our larger group of people and subversion was a, a great and still is a great uh, version control system. But the difference is that um, subversion is developed for people where we're working in teams collaboratively on the same, basically on the same true source line of source. Whereas Git is developed for one person working alone, who's receiving various changes from other people who are also working alone and then folding it into a, a, a larger whole. And that fit Linus's model of the benevolent dictator of, of Linux kernel. 
Um, and both those are are very valid models to have. It's just that the, the software is going to support one or the other and can't really do well for both. Yep, yep. So um, the articles that we talked about that, that happened, there was the paper that you wrote about the Apache Way. That's sort of what coined that term. Right. Oh, dear. And which you said maybe went to ACM or maybe went to IEEE. You couldn't remember, but one of those places. I think it was, for some reason, I think it was IEEE. But, and then uh, there's, this, right. there's the study that uh, Lucent did on what was, you know, how Apache worked. Why, why is that working? And this was all driven by the fact that, that the HTTPD web server was sort of ruling the web and it was a surprise. I mean, it helped that. IBM picked it up for WebSphere. Like that definitely drove a big chunk of that traffic, right? Right. There, there were two phases of that. First was that it was impressive that a group of uncoordinated individuals, you know, since we didn't have a single common employer, we didn't have a single common, you know, workplace or location, we hadn't even met each other, that we were able to create the world's most popular web server in spite of that. And then the second half of it was we were so successful that when IBM was looking to replace its existing project, it looked around and realized that they had nothing that could compete with what, what we had developed in the open. And um, the team that was, that was supposed to come up with a new replacement uh, was more interested in joining us than in developing their own separately. Um, so that was huge because up until that point, the commercial software organizations had really avoided doing much in open source at all, and especially IBM. In fact, we had to spend a lot of time coordinating uh, individual signing of an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, so that we wouldn't reveal the fact that IBM was willing to do open source. Right. I remember. I remember the big secret. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny now. And then, and then there was the one that um, that the Boston Consulting Group and and um, Eric von Hippel, I remembered his name, uh, got you know Karim Lakani and Ben Hyde together to Ben Hyde was an Apache member to work out why people were doing it, sort of the economic factors, um, mm -hmm. and this is sort of personal economy. This is where the the enlightened self interest um, part of open source really came to the fore. Um, with you know data to prove that it it really works that way, because That's a lot right. of a lot of companies couldn't understand why people would donate engineering to anything. Yeah, and and that's that's really a term that that Brian came up with. Brian Bellendorf uh, described it as enlightened self interest um, early on, where we were trying to describe why it is the group of people got together because it you know for. For each of us individually, we had different reasons. I, I was interested in, in research and def defending the protocol. Um, Brian was starting up new companies. Um, and uh, Randy Turbush was doing something similar to that. And Ro Robert Tao was working as a roboticist in at MIT, working towards his PhD. So we, we had, I think, four or five PhD students and... Um, another five or so uh, uh, people who are interested in industry and various different different organizations. And we all had our own specific interests, but the one thing we had in common was the both the 
enlightened sense of all these people can help me and I don't have to tell them what to do. And the self-interest of, of realizing that uh, working together as a collaboration was far more effective than trying to do this individually. Yeah, I remember Brian um, specifically talking about growing the pizza bigger, right? And, and you and I, you and I've talked about this before. There was a time when most of the people we think of as founders of Apache were actually suing each other because there was an attempt to establish primacy for the purpose of you know being the best paid consultant, and essentially, and then it's yeah, and then at some point. Brian and you managed to convince everybody that actually if the pizza got bigger, then every, everybody's slice would automatically get bigger and everybody could continue to work the way they were working before as collaborators. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the original, the, the Magna Carta of Apache is that fax that got sent around with all the signatures basically saying, we're not, we're going to stop suing each other and do this foundation instead. Well, no, I'm, <laughs> that's, that's, that's an interesting way of describing it. Um, no, the, 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 the agreement to do the ASF took, took uh, two and a half years to create. And during that time of, of creating the ASF from the original project, um, I think two companies sprung up and went out of business and two were left over in the form of eventually becoming um, I think what Red Hat picked up and what uh, IBM was, was sort of on the edge of creating. And, you know, there was a lot of movement at that time uh, and a lot of commercial interest. And uh, from my perspective, still being a graduate student at the time, I was I was in graduate school for nine years getting my Ph.D. Thanks. Uh, thanks, mom and dad. <laughs> well, fortunately, I, I paid that way myself, but it was also uh, um is because I was having a lot of fun, and what what the you know graduate school does best is provide the freedom to do it, do whatever needs to be done, assuming you have research grants. And uh, so it you know for us the it was never really dominated by conflict. There were times when we had to stop people from proceeding on their own. So. Um, Various various uh, groups would see us try to come to consensus on what an or organizational structure would be, or what what the corporate structure ought to be. Whereas the the folks who were um, previous founders of companies would just say, "Well, that's obvious. Let me just go do that," uh, you know, because they've done it before. They knew it exactly what they they thought the org should be, so they could just go ahead and do it. It'd be no problem. It's just a, I mean, all it is is a legal document with a state. Um, of course we had to bring them back from the brink because nobody would accept, uh, the leadership of a for-profit company when trying to take the Apache group, uh, into a corporate structure. Um, because it basically it's an issue of trust. If, if you are competing on the basis of, of, um, income and customers, which some, several of the groups, several of the people in the group were doing at the time, um, you were fine with having uh, a graduate student like me um, take leadership of, of the incorporation process. But to have your direct competitor to do that was scary. You know, the fact is that every one of those guys liked each other and they all, they all um, co co you know, cooperated in every aspect. 
but just the idea of putting your uh, of a potential competitor you know in the driver's seat is just too much so you know fortunately we had enough people who could balance the various tasks and and we eventually got IBM to donate a lawyer's time to us and the lawyer helped us draft up sort of standard Delaware corporate um, bylaws. And I have enough background in international politics and, and working with lawyers that I could actually, you know, review that and say, okay, this looks good to me. Does it look good to the rest of the group? And then we eventually we would vote on it and uh, decide that that was okay. And then eventually we'd go through the hassle of, of getting of faxing signatures on the formal document. And that the only reason we needed signatures at that point was because of the, the, the copyright, um, the potential that someone might come back later and say, hey, the Apache group doesn't have any standing um, in c- controlling copyrights for our group work because the group never agreed to it. And so that's what we agreed to. I see. You know, um, there are a lot of things that we do in open source, especially corporate-backed open source, that we learn to do from IBM's legal team, right? So, yes. for instance, um, the CLA, right, right, which is um, contributor licensing agreement, that is a way to handle the fact that individuals own the copyrights, but the organization according to IBM, needs to control them for the purposes of uh, responding to hostile actions uh, and generally, you know, deciding things that need to happen in the aggregate. And yes, it's, it's more like an insurance policy. It's, it's a cover my ass insurance policy. And IBM's legal group was very fond of that. They are. Um, Yes. And I don't know at this point, I mean, I was a very faithful adherent to that, you know, having learned all of this stuff sort of whole cloth from you guys for a long time. Um, at one point, there was a whole thing about where the balance lies. Like, are we, have we gone too far in the direction of um, advancing, advantaging the individual or, or advantaging the group, right? Um, and thinking, thinking all of that through, you know, it all seemed really rational, but then, you know, now we have 20 years of experience behind us in, um, the ways in which aggregating copyright can create some unintended effects, like the sale of my sequel to sun and eventually to Oracle, you know, you, do you want your main competitor to own the crown jewels of the lamp stack? <laughs> right. Um, those kinds of, of checks and balances uh, seem like they're easier to abrogate if you've taken the trouble of aggregating the copyrights. And what do you think? Oh, it's always it's always a balance um, because to do the copyright copyright assignments and and licenses perfectly is would require one hundred percent of the contributors' energy. And then you would have nothing worth contributing from them. Um, I and to to do it to the satisfaction of a lawyer would take even more. So you'd have to uh, undo a lot of the work that we did as a project just to satisfy what a lawyer would really want. And so it's it's that balance of risk. You know how how much how much assurance do you need in order to take a risk to continue? Um, and what I, what I eventually end up just telling people is that, look, the, the Apache organization has been here for 20 years now. 
um, the project itself for 25. And, you know, nobody's sued us. Nobody has, has made it to the point where they actually entered a lawsuit with us because no matter what question they asked, we already had an answer for that. And um, we never actively gone out and sued anyone else because our goal is to spread our software as widely as possible. It's not to defend a particular religion of software. It's not to, to protect the rights of users that we don't even know. It's to um, enable our software to be used as widely as possible. And so that, that combination of, of having as many things taken care of as we can, so be, having that insurance policy in place and consistent. Um, just a minute, I have to stop while my computer tries to. So you can actually hear me when my computer goes to sleep. That's nice. Yeah, yeah, I'm still listening. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. So having the license as as we have it, you know, I, I spent a huge amount of time with the Apache 2.0 license, making it possible for us not to have CLAs because I thought contributor license agreements was that step too far in the sense that I didn't want to require a contributor to sign a document um, saying that they knew all these things were legally true uh, when really all they cared about was fixing a problem in our, in our software. And in almost all cases, when someone comes along and fixes a problem in our software, it's not copyrightable to begin with um, because it's just treated as, as a patch. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's really only the cases where people are contributing something that's significantly new that you could talk about copyright and in some cases patents. Um, but even after all the work we did on the Apache 2.0 license with its contributors, information in it, it contains several clauses about, you know, what it means to contribute and what the effect of the contributions are. Um, we still got uh, requests from various companies saying, well, that's not good enough because we don't have a paper trail that um, even though we set up the license to say that the only way that you can contribute is under the terms of this license, um, that was not good enough. So we had to go back and, and say, um, that, uh, produce another CLA document, which effectively says that you are contributing under this license. Um, uh, you're providing a license to Apache for not only these purposes, but also to go ahead. And if we should relicense it in the future, re change our licenses that we can go ahead and, and relicense re it in according to the same terms. So essentially we can change the terms of our license provided that they're a superset of, of what it is the contributors made. And truly nobody cares about that except for lawyers. Right. And, yeah. And it's, it's, it's nice. It's nice to have because we have a mechanism whereby when a new company comes in and asks us, is it really safe to do open source? Is it really safe? And they, they ask it exactly the same way as the marathon man is asking it. So, um, the dentist comes in and, and with the drill and, and points it at us and says, is it safe for us to do open source? And, and really our, our answer, initial answer is, well, why are you asking us? <laughs> yeah. Why, well, don't ask <laughs> us. We don't care. Right. <laughs> Just I remember. Asking. Yeah. Um, 
But you know, the answer is it's like, yes, it's safe because well, IBM did it. You know, and you know, if if, if IBM was willing to do it, then yeah, safe then IBM is definitely something I used at Sun when I was convincing them. Yes, yes. And that's that's we were very fortunate. Uh, Drew Drew Wright, who was the IBM lawyer at the time, he was he was very generous with his time and also very clear about when he was representing an IBM versus when he was providing us independent counsel. So, and I I really respected that. Excellent. So now, when the, when you started codifying the Apache way, and we started talking about it in quotes like we do, and all that. How did the membership of Apache feel about that, or the the? I guess it was before before there was membership, but the people, you know, the actual members of the community. Um, sorry, I said the question again. I said that when you started writing about the Apache way or talking about it in quotes like a thing, um, how did the rest of the folks do with that idea that there was a like that was everybody sort of like cool yeah that's how we do it or were that were there people who were like that's not what we do or do we really want to do that you know was that was there much conversation about it? Well, the interesting thing you know, when when I did that, there was only one Apache project, and it was very early in, in the scope of things. So I knew exactly how the Apache way worked. Uh, shortly after that, we brought in all the Java projects and who were you know developed mostly on their own. Um, based upon our work, but not not really with the same people. And a wonderful group of people started joining in, especially in, inside the foundation. We brought them in as members as soon as they as we could. Uh, a wonderful group who were doing the java.apache.org at the time, which had to be changed to Jakarta for trademark reasons. Um, and uh, they developed their own community using the same basic principles as the server project community, but not quite the same rules. And, and of course, it more aligned to the way Java projects developed. So people were more organized around um, uh, class hierarchies and library files, things like that, common utilities, whereas the C project was, it's C, you only copy and paste. Um, and so it's... Uh, Really, what what happened is as as the two communities started um, existing side by side, they developed their own ways of doing things. Even though they had they they shared the common heritage, and really Brian was one of the main people who who was on uh, around the foundation. And then whenever we had uh, the ApacheCon conferences, we'd all get together and share ideas with each other on how to resolve things. And, and when there is a big debate about Tomcat, you know, changing uh, which which platform to use, then all of us helped resolve the conflict in that in that project success, successfully. Um, but we came came up with sort of different perspectives of what the Apache Way is, and I thought that was great. I thought each of the projects, as soon as they could ought to define their own way of working so that they had ownership of it. So that they felt this is our way of working, not some distant relative's way of working, but our way. We chose it. We got into this involved and this is how we're going to move forward. And that, that level of ownership would allow them to help resolve the social disputes that are inevitable in any uh, community. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing when, when people come to me and often 
they talk about how do you resolve differences in X, Y, or Z project? And, and how do you do this elsewhere? And I really have to point back to this, you know, this is just people. It's just people have disagreements and they have to resolve it. And our, our way of resolving it is, is in essence, going back to really old time community resolution techniques where you have basic dem democracy and you have people decide the direction that they want to go. And if, if people don't want to go the same direction, you can't stop them from going in a different direction. You just have to provide them a way to come back. You know, if, if they decide their direction is, is the bad direction, make it, make it certain for them to understand that it's okay to have made a mistake and to come back into the fold. And likewise, make sure that they understand that if it turns out their way is way better than ours, that we can go join their way later on. Uh, because that's the, the nature of all development, really. It's, it's, you really don't know what the solution is until you've actually developed it. That's really interesting. Um, I remember, so I, I, yeah, I remember yeah, when, I, when, um, when Bill was trying to talk you guys into rewriting one more time the web server to run natively on Windows. Remember that? Yeah, I remember many conversations around that, yes. Well, remember that it was sort of decided that the, the, the organization in the large wasn't in a big hurry to do that, but that you were willing to give him space to try it. And then, of course, it turned out to be, you know, everybody ended up on board eventually, right? Right. And, and part of that is um, everyone wanted more users. Um, it wasn't so much the, that the group didn't want to move to Windows NT as, a, as another platform. The key problem was that we didn't want to have Windows NT machines ourselves. We didn't want to manage them. We didn't want to get licenses and we didn't want to deal with the development environment. But what Bill was able to do was, was to um, both fund a team of his own. So he funded more energy for the project that would build it up to the point where it was at an equal level of energy as the, the Unix developers. And keep in mind that at any time with the Apache projects, there was never more than 15 people actively involved on the server. So it's not all that difficult to get to the point where you have another 15 people working on the Windows level as, as the Unix players were. And then, and, and on both sides that they would then degrade in terms of people would go off and do other things. So you'd end up back down to 15 again, eventually. And, uh, so he, he was interested in a particular thing. So he, he, he funded that as a, as a goal, both actually being on windows NT and also on the IBM server platforms. And IBM had the ability to do that. And the fact that we were willing to entertain that as another, you know, as just more platforms, it was one of the key aspects of our group. We didn't see that as a, as a corporate takeover. If anything, we were taking over IBM. Yeah, I've heard that many times. It's it's uh, it's I think had, there's some truth to it, but it's also it's also sort of dangerous, right? Oh, absolutely. It's it's dangerous, but it's it is one of those things where um, there's a certain amount of cultural cohesion that if you have enough strength in the culture of the project 
you can defend it against the notion that um, it's going to be overwhelmed by a more, you know, a, a company like IBM. Because even though IBM's a massive company with the ability to throw billions of dollars around at the time, um, they didn't have the cultural cohesion of that. They had a million different projects, each going in their own di different directions. And the fact that, you know, we were a project was perfectly in line with that. They didn't, they didn't see it as we're competing with IBM because we weren't competing with IBM. Yeah, no, you were additive to them. I mean, WebSphere was a very popular project for them. So, yeah. And Java, they they wanted more. They wanted a bigger piece of the determination of how that was all going to happen, right? And XML, mm -hmm. and the, XML, right? And the the I would say the Windows NT team at at uh, Microsoft, the actual operating system team, wanted to help us as well because they wanted more people to use NT as a server. And even though the the Microsoft IAS team was theoretically competing with with Apache. Um, you know, from the operating system perspective, they want to help everyone. So they were assisting us as well. Yeah, no, they, I realize that they've been super helpful for you guys and, and for some other projects too. The Linux kernel notably wouldn't be where it is without them, right? Right. 